Welcome to Econoday Unplugged. Each week, our expert team explains the relationship between economic announcements and market reaction. For over 25 years, Econoday has provided value for the investment industry, amassing a comprehensive, machine-readable database of global market events. Econoday provides solutions for macroeconomics, sovereign debt, agricultural commodities and historical data, all delivered by API, XML and HTML. Connect the dots with Econoday. Subscribe to the Econoday Unplugged podcast and go to www.econoday.com to follow market events. Hello and welcome to Econoday Unplugged. It's Wednesday, the 10th of July, 2019. Mark Pendry is across the pond stateside and I'm Jeremy Hawkins here in London. Well, you might not know it from just looking at recent asset price move, but there's still an awful lot of uncertainty around at the moment, be it economic or political. And of course, some investors don't like uncertainty. Just a few days ago, Turkish President Erdogan sacked his central bank chief for not cutting interest rates. And on Sunday, Greek snap general election returned the centre-right New Democracy Party, which ultimately was one of the architects of the country's financial crisis. And yet the Turkish lira has fallen, what, just a couple of percentage points versus a dollar? And 10 years Greek bonds are yielding less than 30 basis points more than their US Treasury counterparts. So it seems that such confidence has uh, placed rather a lot of faith in the cut from the Federal Reserve rates and, and sooner rather than later. So, mm. Mr. Pender, you've had yes. the June employment report just uh-huh. off the press. You've had some comments from Mr. Powell. So uh-huh. do they support this e-speculation or is I- someone going to be very disappointed? I guess we should just throw out the June employment report because Powell's sounding very dovish here. I don't, you know, I mean, uh, it looks like we're going to at least get a quarter point uh, rate cut at, at month end. Um, and uh, if not, it's, I guess it's it's possible that it, it could be more. The, you know, um, the employment report for June was very, very strong, but it didn't include uh, 200 and what was it, 224, 224,000 rise way beyond expectations but there was no um um uh, uh rise or uh, pressure in in average hourly earnings so um is that standard fare these days haven't yes. been having it for mm-hmm. forever so what's what's changed all of a sudden if sudden's the right word well what's changed is that what, what hasn't really changed this year even though we've had a couple of weak months may and march uh in, in uh, payroll growth uh it's actually been uh, pretty steady or it, uh it has come back up to the uh, over the 200,000 line and that is a very strong rate of growth so what hasn't really changed for the economy for the US economy is the strength of the labor market and demand for labor and i think that's a kind of a global thing actually uh, the U.S. is certainly – there was, you know, uh, uh, the talk that there might be a, a weakening in, in employment uh, growth, but it hasn't happened yet. And that has not been, like you were saying, associated with uh, – yet with uh, rising um, uh, uh, earnings. But uh, if you actually step back and you look at the decline in the, um, uh, in the unemployment rate, uh, to 3.7 percent, under 4 percent now, and you uh, look at the uh, the climb in average hourly earnings, which are over 3 percent. Uh, you'll see that it's a you know it, it, it the Phillips curve and uh, it, it actually kind of works still. It's just kind of in slow motion. Um, so we can't really throw out 
um, you know, uh, 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 standard ideas of supply and demand in the labor market. But people seem to be doing this, and it's also in the Federal Reserve, quantitative easing and all and everything. Uh, a complete lack of uh, a traditional, uh, you know, a sound prudence so and. <laughs> let me ask. Let me ask you then. I, I thought I saw um, one of Powell's comments saying there is no basis for calling this a hot labour market. So yeah. when does the labour market become hot in Fed speak? Hmm. Well, it. it uh, I'm not exactly sure. We'll have to if he actually can put a number on it. But uh, it actually is hot right now. At least it was in in, in June. And uh, if, if you're, you know, you're. If uh, to absorb new newcomers into the labor market, the traditional number used to be one hundred thousand, and and, uh, and I guess that may have moved up to one hundred and fifty thousand, maybe. But we're we're beyond that, in any case, uh, or we're averaging more than that. Um, so I guess maybe a hot labor market would then be wages. If you get the uh, the wage pressure, and you know, you actually see that, then that would be. Um, I guess, uh, evidence of lack of uh, slack in the uh, labor market. Um, but like, you know, it is going up. Uh, it may not be going up and up, but, you know, can we absorb newcomers or can we uh, bring in, uh, you know, new people into the labor market? And we did in June. Uh, so the participation rate, rate uh, 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 went up. Um, bringing in, you know, uh, uh, people who, who to be in the labor force, all you have to be is to actively look for a job and more people are looking actively looking for a job. So, um, it's pretty healthy conditions right now. Uh, and, and without the pressure of, uh, the need or the perceived need to lower interest rates, I don't think the fed would be, uh, would have any need at all to, to, uh, to uh, to cut rates, uh, GDP seems to be doing pretty well, two to three percent range. Uh, the early estimates for next week's retail sales report look pretty mod, you know, a, 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 a moderate to solid uh, 0.4, 0.5 percent monthly increase. Um, things are actually humming along uh, very nicely right now, despite all the trade talk and all the global slowing and everything. And now we're going to get, and, and of course, fiscal spending is through the roof, right? So now we're going to get fiscal spending, and and now we're going to get stimulus from the Federal Reserve. We'll just see how much slack we have in the in so, the labor so market. So is it is it really now the case, and that's if if we do see a Fed cut? Um, it's really down to the markets because perhaps we're getting into this kind of environment in which, as we talked about in part of the intro, you know, markets are trading in the belief that the Fed's going to come out and cut. And if we don't see a cut, is it the case now that the Fed's too worried about what the implications for asset prices might be? Hmm. Uh, well, uh, you know, they don't put that on their list. Uh, they have oh, uh, quite uh, sure uh, they don't. <laughs> Well, they have, you know, they have a, 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 they have two things on their list that they have to constantly watch, and that's, uh, you know, full employment yep. and a, a, a stable inflation rate at two percent. And sometimes when they're worried about asset, they'll throw in financial uh, stability. That isn't really what they're looking at right now. The, you know, uh, Powell uh, has been saying that um, uh, asset prices are not uh, over overly done. So uh, I don't think that they will actually um, – it's like you know Donald Trump. They won't actually put this into their 
uh, what they actually talk about in their minutes or anything. <laughs> it's like they, you know, uh, but it's it's there in the background somewhere. Maybe they talk about it on the elevator or in the hallway. But when they get into the room, uh, uh, th- this is a uh, these are, are topics that are aren't discussed. Okay, one last quick one then on the Fed. Um, I notice is it right, Donald Trump? He's picked a couple of people. Is it Christopher Waller and Judy Shelton as nominees for the Federal Reserve Board? Mm. How I understand they're supposed to be. I don't know about how the its process works, but I understand it. They're supposed to be sort of doves. Um, how important are these sort of nominations going to be? I mean, will they impact Fed policy, or is it just something which can come and go or, or whatever? Well, will they get through the Senate? Uh, well, you know, quite. Yeah, I mean, I don't enough about this. Does it? How's it work? Well, they have to go through the Senate. The Senate is controlled by the Republicans, but um, they have to be, you know, uh, um, you know, uh, they have to have had a career in, in central banking or in, in some kind of a banking, uh, you know, mode. And um, and then uh, whether or how long it will take. I mean, uh, there's a couple of empty positions. They haven't been filled for years. Um, and uh, so there's a lot of, in, uh, you know, back and forth. Uh, but it's, a, you know, it, we have to remember that um, Powell, despite all the issues, has, except for this last uh, uh, meeting in June, has kept uh, with Bullard from St. Louis uh, 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 wanting uh uh, not going w- w- with the with the group, ha- he has had a consistent. He has had, um, uh, you know, a full, uh, 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 you know, uh, unanimous um, board. And it's important to remember that you know Trump appointed uh, Powell, and uh, so it's not like he's an outsider. Uh, or he's not like, he, you know, he's, you know, someone that, you know, that was out of the blue, but he was from the Federal Reserve within the institution. And the institution itself has a, you know, uh, a character. And this character is, you know, one of, uh, you know, uh, supposedly uh, fiscal, you know, uh, uh, monetary uh, prudence and those kinds of things. So, um uh, I don't think, it, you know, they, they seem once they get into the system and, and these are uh, positions on the, in Washington, right? These aren't um, the Federal Reserve District Banks. Um, so and uh, the, the ones in Washington are probably going to end up going with the, the group. I don't know unless you uh, how it will be. Um, whether the Senate would approve someone who is a complete outsider would not be the tradition of the Federal Reserve, but there's a lot of things that aren't traditional right uh, right now about Federal Reserve uh, policy and its relationship, to, uh, especially to the administration. Okay, interesting stuff. Thanks, Mark. Um, let's just stick with the central banks uh, for the moment, because I guess one of the most important announcements coming out of continental Europe last week was the uh, prospective replacement for ECB chief Mario Draghi. And to all intents and purposes, it looks pretty well certain now that uh, his successor will be Christine Lagarde. She's currently the chief of the IMF. Uh, she will become the first non-professional economist to head up the ECB. So I guess uh, to that sort of extent, 
she fits in with uh, Jerome Powell. Um, and what's it going to mean in terms of monetary policy? That's what everyone's going to want to know. Well, I guess in the sense that she's not really an economist, it means she'll be looking to Philip Lane, recently installed as the uh, ECB's new chief economist um, for plenty of guidance. Now, Lane is a guy who was, well, firstly, was a big supporter of Mario Draghi. I think it's widely respected as being dovish and also someone who is seen as an intellectual and and the sort of person who's prepared to look at new aspects of monetary policy, revise traditional measures and all this sort of thing. So it could actually make for quite an interesting time. But I think the bottom line is that don't expect any big changes early on in terms of the general thrust of policy. But yes, it looks very likely that the ECB under the uh, the rule of Christine Lagarde will continue to operate with a, a typically speaking, a bias towards the more dovish. One other point which I suppose should be mentioned by virtue of the fact of Lagarde taking over, that rules out uh, Bundesbank President Jens Wiedmann. He was one of the favourites for the job and clearly had he assumed the role then it would have certainly made for that much more of a hawkish bias as far as the central bank's concerned. Just because of the Bundesbank tradition? Very much so. And also, I think if we go right back to the start of quantitative easing for the ECB, uh, the likes of uh, Germany and Austria have made it very apparent that they've been extremely reluctant, really, to actually go ahead and, and, and facilitate this quantitative easing. Um, and as it's been extended, they've been the sort of the central banks making noises of that. Well, look, the balance sheet is already big enough. It's mm-hmm. very old school, traditional, you know, the bigger the balance sheet, the greater the risk to inflation, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, had um, uh, the Bundesbank taken control of the ECB and almost certainly, I think, you know, the prospects, if we do see some kind of additional easing coming out of the ECB post-Draghi, it'd be a lot further down the road and it'd be likely to be under Christine Lagarde. Now, now, Jeremy, I have a question about fiscal policy in the, the Eurozone. Um, is it the ECB doesn't have you can't really lower its its policy rate, um, so uh, it would likely have to go into some kind of a you know uh, uh, funding of banks or or of course uh, quantitative easing. Um, uh, so uh, talk to us about the options that the ECB has and and the options that and how fiscal stimulus is achieved in, in uh, you know, intentional fis- fiscal stimulus is achieved in the Eurozone. Right. Well, in terms of what the ECB can do at the moment, I think it's kind of carte blanche because whatever they've tried so far has had some impact, but to intents and purposes, not enough. Now, in terms of interest rates, I mean, if we go back just, well, I don't know, a few months ago or perhaps a little bit before that, um, Draghi and co have kind of intimated that 0%, which is where their benchmark refi rate stands at the moment, was to all intents and purposes the lower bound. So there's no point in pushing it down anymore. However, I think it's fair to say that over the course of this certainly this last quarter, perhaps for the last couple of quarters, when the economy simply hasn't performed as well as they were expecting it to, or certainly hoping to, that they're now coming down on the side, well, look, perhaps we could push interest rates just a little bit lower. The big worry for the ECB on the interest rate side is that low interest rates typically hit bank profitability. And when you've been working for so long with zero interest rates as it is, then banks are really squealing about how, how hard it is to make any money, push them down even further. 
further, of course, and banks are going to struggle that much more. Now, what they could do would be to introduce a small cut, say 10 basis points, perhaps 15 basis points, but alongside that to introduce what they called a, a tiered deposit rate. So this is a rate which is paid to the uh, commercial banks for, for holding reserves above that, that amount they have to uh, under the uh, ECB policy. So if you like uh, you know, excess reserves, what they could do is try to, you know, introduce a tiered structure which would help to offset some of the negative implications for banks of a lot of a negative benchmark interest rates but it seems to me whatever they do on that front is still going to be pretty small at the end of the day what's the difference between you know a zero rate and a minus 10 basis point rate well not a lot so i think it's still more likely that they'll end up coming with additional quantitative easing and the big question mark then is what sort of asset classes are going to use they do still have some room in the uh, government bond market Markets, although it probably mean they had to make some changes to their, their so-called capital keys, which allocates just how much of each particular market they can buy. Or it may mean that actually start going down you know, the likes of a Japanese route, the BOJ route, and actually doing some buying in the equity markets. Now, Eurozone equity markets is nothing like the size you have on your side of the pond, but it's something which could be introduced perhaps with some you know, more conventional types of asset purchases as well. Now, what about fiscal policy now? Well, fiscal policy is interesting because if you listen to Draghi's comments over the last several um, ECB press announcements, towards the end of it, he always comes, he's always been coming out and saying, well, look, basically, it's not just the job of monetary policy to try and get this economy going again and get um, inflation moving up towards its near 2% target. It's the job of the fiscal policy makers as well. Um, and the thing is now that Eurozone uh, fiscal policy actually has room to come out and reflate and still meet its 3% deficit to GDP target. Um, the German side effective has got a surplus at the moment. France is nudging close to 3%, but for the Eurozone as a whole, they've actually got some room. And it could well be the case, I think, that if we think you know, the, the policymakers themselves take the view that monetary policy has done all it can, mm -hmm. they could allow some tinkering of these so-called um, growth and fiscal pact policy, uh, mm -hmm. fiscal pact marks, which you know, limit how much spending they can do. Well, so how, there do is room they, how, how do they stop the Italians or the Spanish, for instance, from you know, increasing uh, fiscal spending? Well, what they do, um, they introduce something called an excessive deficit procedure under which if it looks as if um, Italy is obviously a, a case in point at the moment because they're round about the 3% mark. If um, Italy comes out and presents its budget proposals and it suggests that there's a clear breach of a 3% mark and it doesn't show in the forecast that the 3% mark is going to come back into play. So, but, but who's making the forecast, the Italians that, or, oh, or, the, or the Brussels? Italians will make the forecast and provide the European Commission with it, who will then inspect it. If the European Commission decides, well, look, this is breaking our rules, then they'll issue Italy or whoever it may be with a warning under its so-called excessive deficit procedure. And if Italy don't do anything about it, then they start introducing fines, which will be a, a fraction of a percentage point of GDP. Um, and that can be increased over time. So the bottom line is that you know, ultimately they've never actually done this so far, but it would mean that an overspending or an undertaxing country, which is seeing its deficit grow too quickly, could face fines. Well, who would pay the fine? The, the, the Italian, Italian taxpayers? Government. 
well, well, ultimately, it's, it's the Italian government is going to pay it. So and where's the Italian government going to get the money from? So this is the sort of thing, which is one reason, of course, why the, uh, the Brussels is extremely reluctant to levy it. Because if you take a country like Italy at the moment, with its new populist government in there, the last thing it really wants to do is to try and you know, agitate the political divide, which is becoming increasingly apparent across that country, mm-hmm. and actually uh, undermine the, the kind of political harmony they're desperately to achieve across the Eurozone at the moment. Mm-hmm. And they would pay a fine to Brussels, and what would they do with them with the money, right? Uh, well, I, you know, so, I don't know. Well, it's never happened so far. I suspect at the end of the day, they're going to some kind of fund which might actually be used if they ever get their political act together on a, on a unanimous basis. That it could be used to actually help you know, areas of the eurozone economy which actually needs it. Okay, this is so. Where the- so let yeah, me sorry. ask how the Eurozone economy is doing now. I know you've been saying it's slowing. Has that slowing eased a bit? Are we looking at for the full year? What's your outlook now for a full year Eurozone GDP growth? Well, it's been mixed signals of late. Um, and the good news is we've been talking about the, you know, the, the depth of a downturn in manufacturing over the last several weeks. Um, but it looks as if from the figures we've had coming through this week, and I suppose the highlight in terms of the numbers on Friday, we'll get the May industrial production report. But we've had national numbers showing increases in production coming out of Germany, which is 0.3 on the month. Italy was up 0.9. And there's a very good showing by France, which is up 2.1%. So markets were the consensus for production for the eurozone as a whole on friday was 0.2 percent on the month that i suspect is going to be too low now it's probably going to come in somewhere about 0.6 something like that <clears throat> excuse me however the bad news is that even if we get a, a 0.6 percent figure in um, in may then unless we're going to see an increase in june of that one percent or so which i expect is extremely unlikely then the industrial production sector as a whole is still going to subtract from second quarter gdp growth so at the moment you know there's a lot of volatility in the monthly data across a number of Eurozone series, and indeed, I think, you know, probably your side as well. But putting a straight line through these things at the moment, it looks as if second quarter Eurozone growth is going to be, I suspect, 0.2%, 0.3% at best on a quarter-on-quarter mm. basis, so still sluggish. And that's going to equate, I suspect, with, you know, full-year growth of between 1%, one, 1.5%, one so certainly nothing to write home about. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other side of it is, uh, it's quickly mentioned before we go on for too long on this, I guess, um, the on the consumer side, uh, May retail sales, they were down 0.3% on the month. And that means it looks, well, my guess is that the second quarter, again, is going to struggle to show any growth at all, which kind of suggests that if we're going to see growth coming out of the Eurozone in the second quarter. It's going to have a lot to do with um, exports at a time when you know global trade ain't doing too well. So mm-hmm. we've got some problems there at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, let me just round off then from the European side with uh, UK because we had the uh, the monthly May GDP figures here. As people may remember, the uh, the monthly profile for UK output has been heavily distorted by Brexit effects with you know, businesses building up stocks um, ahead of what was supposed to be the Brexit deadline at the end of March, then finding out that it's not actually the end of March, it's probably the end of October. So we saw a massive run-up in production, which saw GDP... Um, for, uh, sorry, rising over the back end of last year and beginning of this year. And then April saw um, manu- total GDP falling 0.4% um, on the month. Today's figures showed May offering a rebound of 0.3%. And within that, basically, it was the, the nosedive in manufacturing, which is off 4.2% in April. We saw that at least partially re- uh, recovered in terms of the May data. Now, is that a, a year on year? Is that a year on year? No, decline? these are all month on month. On it's month a four- percent monthly four percent yeah well with it within that we had a 24 percent month on month 
slump in uh, the manufacture of vehicles. And that was all down to um, a lot of the car companies pulling forward orders and making sure they were complete before what they thought was going to be the Brexit deadline, because no one's got any idea what's happened to their markets in Europe once you know, Brexit has happened. Now, of course, they found out, well, at least got until October. So they started producing again. But what, having do, said, they, what do they yeah. do with the auto workers? Well, at the moment, the auto, the auto workers are put on part time. So they actually sort they actually put some on part time, and they also brought forward a number of holidays as well. So they don't show up in the uh, jobless claims. So they won't show up properly, no, because it's only short time stuff. But anyway, put it all together, it means that probably second quarter UK GDP is going to be, I'd guess, flat at best, and it may even be a negative number coming in there. And what's that mean for UK interest rates? Well, at the moment, of course, nothing because we've still got Brexit to be sorted out. Well, I, I, I can't let you go without telling us who's, who's going to get the who's going to be uh, the, the prime minister. Well, the next prime minister will be named. We should know who the next prime minister over here in the UK is uh, within a couple of weeks time. That's due on Tuesday week. Um, almost certainly, if you believe the opinion polls and virtually irrespective of whatever he might say or do, it will be it will be the former foreign secretary, Boris Johnson, um, who, despite so far, it's got to be said in terms of the hustings and the TV appearances. He hasn't come out of it particularly well, but he's still liked and he's seen within the Tory party as being the best chance for conservatives have of beating Labour in the next general election. So it looks like it'll be Boris Johnson. But one, the problems with Johnson is that irrespective of what he says, no one's really clear exactly what he's going to do with Brexit. He said that he doesn't want to leave without a deal, which, of course, is the massive thing as far as the market's concerned. I thought he's, he's committed to leaving it October 31st. Well, this is it. Well, he said that he doesn't want to leave without a deal, but he is committed to leaving on October the 31st. But he can't do that unless Parliament lets him. And Parliament, as things currently stand, is not prepared to see the UK leaving without a trade deal, which is why, as I say, this thing is just so completely up in the air. No one's still got any idea what's going to happen. And that, of course, has been reflecting the pound at the moment, which, although it's kind of clinging on, it's, it's gradually you know, dribbling lower because investors are getting completely fed up with the whole thing. Um, OK, before we go, I just mentioned since we are talking central banks, we had the Bank of Canada announcement uh, just a few minutes ago. No change in their overnight target rate of one and three quarters percent there. And indeed, from what they were saying, they're actually not too unhappy the way the Canadian economy is going, unlike most central banks these days. But and in line with so many other central banks at the moment, they did highlight the growing risk to growth of all these global trade conflicts. And indeed, it seems this global trade issue is one of the big issues on them um, all the central bank's agendas at the moment. Okay, Mr. Pender, anything else to add? I guess rates are going down. Is it the global rates are going down? It, it does it, look it, like it, doesn't it? Yeah. It does look yeah. like And the interesting thing is yeah. what's going to happen if they don't. Okay, on which note then, that's it for today then. On behalf of Mark and myself, as always, thank you very much for listening and we'll be back again next week. Bye for now. Econoday has provided value for the investment industry for over 25 years, amassing a comprehensive machine-readable database of global market events. Our exceptional data set consists of consensus, actual reported and revised numbers of economic events. Algorithmic trading firms, global banks, asset managers, hedge funds and AI technology firms are leveraging Econoday's unique historical data set to fuel their proprietary trading models and support their research and compliance teams. Go to www.econoday.com and follow at Econoday on Twitter to learn more.